On today's episode of the O'Reilly Data Show, I sit down with my good friend Danny Bixon, a co-founder and VP at Datto. We talk about uh, recommender systems. So Danny is famous for uh, writing the collaborative filtering library in GraphLab and also talk about deep learning, domain-specific versus generalized solutions, and his conference, the Data Science Summit, of which I'm uh, part of the organizing committee. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the Data Show, Dan. Hi, Ben. It's great to be here. So let's start by introducing you to the audience and uh, talk a little bit about your background. You have a PhD in computer science. Uh, what's your area of focus, machine learning in graduate school? Uh, so, yes, I do have a PhD in computer science, but I actually started from the system side, working on a distributed algorithms lab at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. So I'm more of a systems guy, but in the middle of my PhD, I started uh, getting interested in uh, graphical models, which are algorithms for uh, uh, graph analytics. And basically they send messages uh, on a graph and that fits very well to a communication graph and can be very nicely distributed. So I got uh, attracted towards the machine learning domain but from the system side. So that's interesting because our mutual friend, uh, Joey Gonzalez, started out in machine learning and is now going into systems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we did uh, maybe intersecting uh, paths. Yeah. Um, so at some point, you did your postdoc at uh, Carnegie Mellon with Carlos Guestrin, who's the uh, co-founder and CEO of Datto and also professor now at University of Washington. And... Uh, what led to uh, you folks uh, creating GraphLab? Yeah, so uh, that's correct. I was a postdoc at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, the interesting thing, they, they looked for a postdoc which has ex both expertise in machine learning and distributed systems. And luckily, they didn't find anyone <laughs> because no one has these two uh, very distinct set of skills. The machine learning people are very high into theory and they know the algorithms very well in the model, but they don't care about systems and the system guys don't care about machine learning. So I was more or less the only candidate which was interested in both. So I got the position and the GraphLab project was an idea of uh, Carlos, who was my advisor, and he got a lot of um, DARPA and NSF funding to support a distributed machine learning framework. So. Uh... Carlos, who was also actually uh, a guest on the uh, data show early on, and I will make sure we have a link to that episode uh, that on the post that accompanies this episode, uh, mentioned that one of the reasons GraphLab became popular was because of the collaborative filtering library, which you actually uh, uh, wrote. But uh, not only did you write this library, you kind of insisted on in writing this library. <laughs> so what... Uh, what made you think that uh, there was going to be this uh, demand for uh, a library like that at that point in time? Yeah, so actually it was kind of uh, accidental. I was working in my PhD a lot of linear models, like linear system of equations and interactive solvers. And matrix factorization, which is the base algorithm behind the collaborative filtering, or at least one of the base algorithms, is very related to linear system. It kind, can be thought of some kind of an extension. Uh, it's more uh, powerful, but still it's a very, it's a very powerful model. And when I was at CMU, one day I heard a lecture by uh, a guy named uh, Liang Chiong, which is now a researcher in Facebook, 
who actually worked on uh, what they call Bayesian factor, uh, uh, Bayesian tensor factorization. Uh, so this uh, work uh, drew me towards the domain and I started to and uh, to look into it. Uh, his code was in MATLAB, so I tried to re-implement it on uh, our system GraphLab. And uh, initially, when we started the project, uh, we had uh, what we call um, a framework, which is like an engine API for graph analytics. But we found out that not many people are interested in just writing code for a framework because it's very low level and it's not that intuitive and it's hard and not many people have the skills. But once we started to package algorithms on top of the framework, then uh, we became way more popular because people wanted to use pre-made building blocks so they can easily use them. One of the interesting stories uh, behind the success of this uh, toolkit, as we call it, uh, was uh, because we started to compete in, uh, back then it was a relatively known uh, competition called the uh, ACM KDD Cup, Knowledge and Data uh, Forgot the acronym. <laughs> yeah, that's discovery exactly. Uh, Cap. It was uh, back in 2011. Uh, back then there was no Kaggle, so you didn't have uh, much opportunity like today uh, that you have zillion competitions and a lot of interesting datasets to to be shared. So when we started to compete uh, using our code, we actually did something which was counterintuitive, we actually shared our code during the competition and then people, if they download it, they could improve their own results. So that got us very quickly to hundreds of downloads and a lot of companies were involved in this competition. So that actually opened us a lot of doors in the industry. So that's interesting because the way you describe it, actually this uh, collaborative filtering toolkit started out as pure research and, and basically it just became popular accidentally. Yes, it started as a pure research, but the trigger for it to become popular is that we shared solutions in a running competition because basically when you compete in a, some competition, you don't share anything because you want to win and you want the other team to lose. But because we didn't have an incentive to win, we just wanted to make the project uh, more famous and successful. We released uh, intermediate results that gave you a good score on the leaderboard of the competition and people started to quickly uh, download it to try and improve their own solution. So that uh, was a very useful tool for them to have. So by, actually, by the time I heard of uh, GraphLab, I was actually drawn to it by this uh, collaborative filtering toolkit. And by the time I actually heard about it, there were actually already industry users of it, right? So is that uh, accurate that uh, at some point people in industry actually started using this uh, uh, CF library? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we had many users in the industry and um, uh, which used our open source. It was Apache 2 license. So basically they didn't have to report anything. They just downloaded and use it. And it took us a few years to get connected back to companies and told them, oh yeah, we are using you, but... Uh, companies like to use free stuff, but from the other end, they don't like much to pay and they don't like to give much credit. So only a handful of those companies uh, actually confirmed they are using some, just use it without even uh, giving credit. So actually, uh, at uh, at some point, this library got bigger and bigger, right? So in terms of the number of algorithms. So 
at what point did it uh, grow beyond you or were you always the uh, main person writing and maintaining and yeah so support? yeah so for this uh, package i was the main person there were two variants one of top of power graph which was a distributed version of the algorithms and the other was on top of graph G, which was our multi-core uh, version and i didn't write the uh, the engine, the computational engine that we had uh, other guys like Joey and Yuching and uh, uh, Apple who wrote those sections, but I was focusing on the algorithm side and I maintain uh, it. And it and it was fun because there is a major difference between publishing an article, academic paper versus uh, writing code that people use. Because when you publish a paper, I get every six months, I get an email. Oh, we read your nice paper and we have question about equation three. But once I started to use algorithms that I use in industry, I would write about them in my blog. And immediately the next day, there were three companies that would like to use the code and have comments and would like to invite me to, to visit them and so on. So things became way more interactive once people started using the code. So uh, I, I take it at some point you uh, you and the rest of the team behind GraphLab uh, realized uh, there must be there might be a company behind this uh, 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 toolkit and also just in the broader broader class of problems of uh, machine learning. Um, but I guess my question is at that point in time there were already machine learning companies, right? So. What made you folks suspect that there was actually an opening for a company like that? Yeah, so I'm not sure I fully agree because now we have way more machine learning oh, companies than, <laughs> than were the back then. So now there is the exponential flood. But if you will look six years ago, there weren't many machine learning companies. There were maybe BI and dashboards and some kind of insights companies, but I wouldn't call them a Well, a I guess uh, let's... Uh, Maybe not machine learning companies, but companies that provided analytics, let's say like SaaS. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, SaaS, MATLAB, yeah, yeah, yeah. SPSS. But I guess what you, what your vision was, let's take uh, uh, machine learning algorithms that can scale, that are fast, provide uh, tools to make it easy to deploy in production, and and uh, use that as the basis for a company. Is that? Yeah, yeah. So we had, because we had the interaction from companies who were inviting us, one of the early interesting uh, interactions was, was with Saudi Armaco, the Saudi oil company right, who right. wanted to use some of our algorithms. And then uh, I said to Carlos, if a Saudi oil company would like to use us, probably there is some uh, money to be done here. Right. So I was, I was pushing uh, a lot towards this direction. Uh, one of the interesting things, and that's also a story that Carlos uh, likes to tell occasionally is about our uh, annual conference, which started as a workshop. So basically, once there was a few algorithms, we had a few interested companies that were trying to use the code, and then they would invite us to visit them one by one. But after it became 10 or 20 company, I, I told Carlos, there is no way we can go one by one and visit each company because we're, we're not going to make an academic career. and publish more papers, we're simply going to run out of time. So I suggested to bring all the companies together to set up some kind of workshop. And it was um, uh, positive about this idea. And initially, we thought about 20 or 30 people workshop. But at our first workshop, when we started to publish the, um, the agenda, eventually more than 300 people showed up. 
So we had uh, a few times we had to switch rooms and go to bigger and bigger rooms. Yeah, and I, rem- that I a- remember that, actually, because I saw the program. I'm going, wow, this is an amazing program. And <laughs> pretty much, actually, I think that uh, it was called the Graph Lab Conference back then, now the Data Science Summit, but pretty much. Yeah, uh, yeah, we even started with the Graph Lab workshop because we were very humble. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. We- but pretty much uh, to the audience out there that's not familiar with this conference, pretty much, I think, uh, They've kept a pretty high bar. The the uh, the speakers are always pretty amazing at this conference. Uh, coming up in San Francisco on uh, when is it again? It's on July uh, 12 and 13 this year, which are Tuesday and Wednesday. But we also have another version this year for so for the second year we are also holding a conference in Europe. And you should know about it it's just after Strata London. It's uh, June 6th. It's Monday in Jerusalem. And by the way, uh, you are one of the keynotes, keynote speakers. So it must be a good conference. <laughs> <laughs> and you also help us uh, curate yeah. the agenda. So we are very thankful for um, So now that you've had, how many years has Datto been a company? I think around uh, three or so. So anything that surprised you? After all, you guys were academics, right? So anything that surprised you in terms of... Uh, 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 building things for industry. Yeah, so there are a lot of surprises when you switch the cross the lines and switch from uh, academia to industry. Uh, first of all, we learned that companies are not uh, do not like to pay money. Whenever they can avoid it, uh, they try to avoid it. But you have to show them very good uh, value for their money in order to. Yeah, how, how does this move the needle on my uh, revenue? Right, so. Exactly. So you have to have very good uh, business use cases and not just cool technology or technology use cases. And this is one of the uh, uh, many mistakes that we often see with companies that started with academic guys like me and uh, that we focus too much on technology and we do very, we implement very cool algorithms. We propose new systems, but it's not always clear what's the business value. And if you can uh, explain what this technology does to a business manager, a business guy, then it's very hard to, to sell. So we had to make the switch between just technology to things that uh, are valuable uh, to people. So that's one issue we faced. Also, I must admit, uh, I'm the first to admit our uh, academic version was horrible in terms of documentation, zero documentation, zero uh, <laughs> ease of use. So it was very complicated to install. You had to go to GitHub and install things and install packages and configure LAPA, LAPAC and BLAS and numerical uh, packages. And then you had to compile with MPI and debug it. So it was very, very... Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I remember this. <laughs> yeah, we still had <laughs> hundreds of users, but those users were experts that were not afraid. Which uh, actually, uh, I guess, is uh, interesting because now uh, Datto and GraphLab create... Uh, it, so much easier, number one, right, in terms of uh, update, installing and updating. But also you you folks have made uh, sure that you kind of address kind of this end-to-end pipeline, right? So not just 
uh, prototyping models in a notebook, but actually all the way uh, to deploying them in production. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So we started the, uh, from graph analytics. That was the original graph lab. And it was very cool to implement different algorithms. But when we started working with companies and showing them use case, so they say, okay, this is nice, but how do I load my data into a graph? And how do I, after I run the graph algorithm, what do I do with it? I need to classify it or to cluster it together to some to gain some insights. So there are a lot of uh, mechanisms needed besides graphs. So graph is one area of research, but you have also text data and image data and tabular data and time series data. And each one of them needs a bit of a careful attention because it's kind of uh, slightly different than the others. So we did uh, add a lot of uh, capabilities to support different types of uh, inputs. And of course, once we implemented the algorithm, then people came back to us and say, Okay, that's nice. I have a model, but now my user comes and I want in five milliseconds to score the model and give them the, the most, um, the best items to recommend, for example. And then you need to write more and more code to actually be able to, to do it. And once we understood that's a very common task, a very repetitive task, uh, we actually started to add tools that also allow you more easily to serve the models. That's how we call it. And then I think there were a couple of, there are a few things you guys did that really kind of uh, uh, expanded your user base. One, as you pointed out, you started uh, moving beyond graphs to tabular data. And I remember actually uh, the strata in California when Carlos announced uh, uh, S-Frame and people right. got really excited about it, right? Um, and then the other thing is uh, you started to support Python and uh, notebooks. and uh, Again, I think it was at a conference when uh, Carlos demonstrated uh, uh, this capability, and uh, that just opened up uh, your tools to a broader audience. Because, like, uh, for those of you who don't remember, I think the early days of GraphLab it was C plus plus, right? So. Absolutely, yeah. It was very. There are not many people around the, still with C++ expertise and less than that people with MPI expertise. So it is a, a, an ending world, let's say. Not many, uh, and actually, the, actually the uh, supporting Python and notebooks was brilliant too because now you, you are constantly releasing example notebooks and documentation. And Absolutely. So we love IPython uh, notebook. It's a great project. And by the way, in recent stratas and also I just returned from PyData Amsterdam, them, there is not a single speaker in the conference. It doesn't matter which programming language, it doesn't matter which topic. Everyone are using IPython notebooks for today for uh, demonstrating their uh, code and use cases. So that became so popular, and it's uh, it's really it's really convenient. So it's uh, it's really compelling. So in keeping with your early roots and uh, creating that collaborative filtering library. It seems like you kind of uh, maintained the uh, connection to this uh, recommendation systems community, right? So I think, I believe you even help organize some conferences. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we are organizing uh, this year for the fourth year already a workshop that we call a large scale recommender system workshop, which is uh, joint with ACM Rexis. And also uh, in the last couple of years, we. Where, where is this year's conference? Uh, this year it will be in Boston, uh, I think around August, if I'm not wrong. Okay. But we should <laughs> check it out. And um, we also were involved in the recommender uh, system 
conference about uh, TV recommendations uh, jointly with Comcast. The large scale uh, recommendations, it's uh, last four years we organized it jointly with Pandora, with Taoye. So right. that's a... Uh, right. um, so people's uh, interaction with recommender systems are, uh, is pretty much uh, with every online service you touch is using some kind of recommender service. But the ones that they remember the most, uh, I, I would bucket into two. One is the e-commerce, you know, the Amazons, the eBay's of the world, but also the media companies, Netflix, Pandora, Spotify. Uh, so when you're interacting with this uh, services, they all constantly recommend uh, related content. So at a high level, Danny, what are some of the recent trends in uh, recommenders? Yeah, so the pillar stone of recommender system research started with the Netflix competition, which I guess most of us know, and it was about six or seven years ago, I think, and that was for uh, movie recommenders, and their uh, main assumption were that you record the information about user-to-movie interactions and their scores, so that's kind of... Uh, a problem we are very well familiar with. There are hundreds of research papers. This is kind of explored domain where we are very good. The areas that are need a bit more attention is what happens if you have additional data. So not just the user and item interaction, but you also know the day of the week and the time and which type of iPhone the user had and what's the user age and zip code and what is the item color and uh, price and so on. So once you throw more information, of course, you can build richer models, but then the complexity goes up. And the question how to do it effectively, that it will, the modeling will run uh, quickly, but and also the serving side, the decision. So you have you have models that uh, use only kind of the user behavior and er interaction, and then ones that rely on content and other metadata. metadata. Yeah, so you can uh, have models which rely on the user behavior. You can have separate models that rely on item metadata, like find me similar cars to the one sold here and so on. And there are models which are uh, based on uh, text description of project products. There are models which are based on user reviews to products, uh, text reviews and sentiments. And there are models that even take into account images of products. But the most interesting models are the ones that combine hybrid. a lot hybrid models that combine a lot of types of uh, inputs because companies have very rich information. Currently, they're using you know, just a small fraction to uh, make the predictions. But once they uh, gather more information, they can have uh, better models and more accurate models. So that's the areas that are more interesting to me personally, but I also, I think, for industry. I imagine also, Danny, that uh, in reality, when companies deploy these models in production, uh, they're constantly monitoring how these models are performing. And maybe right. they, they even have com multiple models competing, like in a bandit, right. bandit algorithm way. And, Absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. So the way companies uh, work today is first they do offline testing. So they take a subset of the data for being a test data, and then they do some offline testing to see roughly how the model works. But nothing is better than the online testing where they take a fraction of the population, let's say you take one or 5% of your users and then you uh, try them, have them try the new model and see the, uh, how it behaves. And then you can, of course, combine different models and have bandit algorithms to compute this combination online. And that's definitely happens a lot, especially in companies that are really, really well developed, like Netflix and Pandora that, you know, they are like the high end 
of the industry. Yeah, but in, ma in many ways, for these companies, the ultimate metric is something you have to uh, have online, which is engagement. Right. So the metrics uh, are diverse. And the thing is that each company has their own type of needs. And we often hear about different uh, variants of the same thing. So some companies are doing flash crowd sales and just at 8 a.m., the first one who will guy uh, will come to the website will buy the sofa. So that's one type. So you need different types of recommenders. There are news recommenders, which are all the time new, new news breaking. And then there is a different type of uh, um, re refreshness you need to add to the model. Um, there are models about, let's say, if you buy a car, uh, most likely no other car is like the car you bought. So you have to be very careful because each car is sold maybe once in the lifetime of the of the store. Uh, sometimes uh, there are supermarkets that they have many users, but the user I don't not identifiable. So they just pay cash in the registry. You don't know who are the user, but still you want to recommend things. Um, so there are a lot of flavors of what you can do, and that's the richness of this domain. And each company is doing something slightly different. Now, there's also a kind of uh, uh, people who are uh, data scientists who are starting to talk about other issues like uh, transparency in these models, right? So what are the key drivers for these models? And uh, along yeah, so the, it depends uh, on the... Yeah, along those same lines, uh, one of the reasons they uh, are arguing for transparency is uh, maybe some of these models are uh, discriminating. So for example, if I live in a certain zip code, maybe I get a different price, right? So that's why I think some people are saying we need to make these models a little more transparent than uh, how they are now. Yeah, so from my experience in retail, it doesn't really matter. People are not so worried. Uh, if the recommender works well and the store sells more, then people are happy in general, so they don't worry. But there are other domains which are their transparency is super, super critical. For example, in healthcare domain, if you recommend uh, which medication uh, the doctor should give the patient, the doctor no way uh, can accept a machine learning based model. The doctor wants to understand the reasoning why you gave this medication. And if there is a good reason, uh, because there is history of such and such things, and I don't know, and you can clearly explain, then they might consider. Otherwise, there are still a lot of domains that are not probable yet for uh, automatization and uh, medication, for example, uh, healthcare is one of them. Right. Um, so another uh, thing that I'm interested in this area is uh, kind of the idea of uh, AI recommender in the sense that, so here's what I mean by this, Danny. Let's say uh, I have a recommender that knows what I like on Netflix, right? So then, uh, so it's a Netflix app on my phone. And then I start, uh, and then I download another app, which is completely unrelated to Netflix. And then it starts real, you know, recommending me good things because of my, uh, of uh, what it knows about me from another uh, uh, app. Uh, do you think that that will happen at some point? I guess. Yeah, yeah. That's I, guess a, Google, I guess Google is trying to do that in some ways, right? Yeah, that's the direction that we are going through. And of course, it's a relatively preliminary. And uh, we call it transfer learning when you transfer information from one problem domain to another. 
We have two compelling examples, ones with, one with images, for example. So you can uh, use a trained network that has a, that you train, for example, an image net, but then you get to try to classify images of, let's say, crocodile versus camera. And in the original data set, there were no crocodiles and no camera, but still using insights gained by other classes of items that were uh, on those data sets, uh, you can still improve accuracy of classifiers by bringing data from another domain. So it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but it does help. Another uh, good example is for uh, user review data. We have a cool demo that we train data on Amazon data set, which is mainly, uh, you know, electronics and books and music and what people write about them. We gain insight about the sentiment of I love my iPhone and things like that. And then we borrow for, to another domain like restaurant domain and we help to score sentiment of restaurant reviews. Although restaurants are not like uh, uh, iPhones, still uh, there are some uh, insights to be learned. On, on so the first uh, I guess in many ways that uh, transfer learning uh, solves, uh, partially solves this cold start problem where you don't have any data yet in this new domain, right? Right. So one of the uh, main problems with recommenders, many of the retailers or other uh, vendors, uh, they have a large uh, uh, number of users that have never shopped in their store. They often get new visits and for them, they don't know what to do. So if you're using matrix-based factorization, for example, everything is based on the assumption you know the user and you know their history. So then you're stuck. You can do anything besides recommending the popular items. From the other hand, if you use more richer models that include what we call side data, which is information about the user, you can do better. I can give an example. Imagine a user come to the store. You've never seen him before, but you know he lives in New York in a certain zip code and he has iPhone 6S Plus. So that already, and it's, let's say, Friday night. So that already tells you something about this user um, income level and age and things like that that can be uh, related to other users that have shopped in, uh, in this store and then you can improve uh, your offering. So all this information is very valuable and you can improve cold start by throwing in uh, user metadata and also item metadata. Interesting, interesting. So which brings me to a related topic, which is now that you've had uh, several years of working on a commercial company, Dado, um, where do you, uh, what do you think about this whole building for a specific domain as to opposed to a generalized solution? Yeah, so it's a, it's a very hard question because until we get rich, I cannot uh, vouch that <laughs> we are doing the right thing. Although, no, uh, but I mean, even I, I, I would imagine even in your case, you're a general, you might have a generalized solution, but you probably tune it to specific domains, right? So, right. So, uh, from one hand, it's very easy to start with a specific vertical and get to all the customers in that vertical and make sure your products address their needs. So that's a good approach, definitely. When you go as a general framework, you may be applied to a lot of verticals. Uh, so you may open a much larger market, but each vertical has their own set of concerns and set of emphasis. Set of, uh, yeah, they have their different data sources, data right. formats. And different example. metrics and yeah, different... Yeah. Uh, business people and so on. So it is a bit harder to go generally, but we are going generally. And uh, for us, we have customers in healthcare and banking and military and government and uh, retail and uh, 
uh, insurance and many 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 verticals so, so where where do you how, how do you feel about uh, how much domain knowledge does a data scientist need to know where do you where do you stand with that yeah so it is um i think it is important to have some domain knowledge definitely if you don't know anything about this domain it, it's harder i'm often advising for a uh, bioinformatic companies, companies that devise new medications, things like that. And whenever I talk to them, I tell them, look, guys, I don't know anything about your domain. Explain how you take your data, uh, order it as a matrix, and then start talk to me or a graph or something I know. And then let's start from there because um, no one can master all domains. Right, right. But still, we can help them if they are um, able to translate the problem into some uniform format. So it does. Uh, it is a plus to have uh, domain expertise for sure. I can give you an example with uh, with recommenders. Not many people think about it. So we have a lot of algorithms, and not the question is also: Do you know how to use them properly? So imagine I bought a black iPhone and you bought a, a silver iPhone. So basically, we almost bought the same thing. So it just uh, the color has changed. But uh, assume the store has two different. Uh, item numbers for this uh, purchase so it may be that we are completely separated and no one knows that we bought the same thing and then you, you treat us as different so you have to be very careful to understand the logic uh, what's happening and what's an item and what's a user in order to use the algorithm correctly so in this case it is important to actually combine those two items together because they are both the same type of iphone and the color is very marginal it could be a property but it's not a different product. Right. So, so, so that's one ex a pitfall that people uh, fall into. There are a lot of other uh, things that are can tell you they make a lot of sense. So, for example, if I'm rating movies and you watched only one movie, you watched the uh, Matrix. So basically, I don't know anything about you. It doesn't help me at all. It's uh, it's better that I will remove your score uh, because a lot of people watch the Matrix and it's some kind of general taste. So I don't know if you like fashion or drama or or, or military movies. Uh, from the other hand, if you watch too many movies, let's say you watch 10,000 movies and rate it all, it also doesn't tell me anything about you because it means you also like both horror and drama and fashion and politics. Right, right, right. You watch everything. So there are many pitfalls you have to be careful. And that's more of the domain expertise that you have to gain while working on a specific domain and specific problem. And, and those kind of problems, the algorithms don't solve for you because matrix factorization is just take your data, but the question, which data to take, how to normalize it, which parts of the data are not useful, are distracting, and so on. And that's an expertise that you have to, to develop. So as we're winding down here, I, I did want to point out to our listeners that uh, Dato also has uh, deep learning capabilities now. And uh, I think it's one of the easiest ways to get started and play around with deep learning. So uh, at what point did you guys decide to... Uh, 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 ship deep learning in data. Yeah, so as you know, deep learning is one of the hottest fields in uh, machine learning. That's one of the major buzzwords. Uh, so we did want to have a foot in this domain. And so far, we have an initial version uh, which supports convolutional neural nets. But the, uh, the good news is that we hired two of the guys behind uh, MXNet, which is one of the emerging deep learning platforms. Uh, and there you have a lot of other algorithms, including uh, RNN, recursive neural nets, right. and uh, recurrent uh, neural nets. And you have uh, also um, 
a lot of new features like support of multiple GPUs and a distributed so what's, version. So uh, what's the timeline for these uh, other uh, new libraries and features? Oh, so it should be very soon. So it should be in a few weeks. Uh, oh, we are wow. It. Yeah, so it will be very soon. And uh, that's very exciting because we uh, there is a recent uh, study by Professor Alex Mola from CMU. And the funny part that he was working... Uh, very recently in Google, and he has actually a comparison to TensorFlow and to Teano and Cafe. And according to his studies, uh, MXNet is uh, superior in uh, memory footprint and performance. So uh, that's an interesting uh, case study. Well, make sure I put a link to that. And by the way, just for the listeners out there, when Danny says a few weeks, we are recording this in early March. So <laughs> by uh, end of March, I imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. I knew my team will kill me if I give you a definite date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, we are working on that and we are in the final stages, so it shouldn't take too much time. So, so having we... having uh, talked about this deep learning thing, so there must be a reason why you guys are doing this. Are, are, are you hearing people asking about deep learning? Yeah. So to be honest, I want to tell you that I'm, I'm a bit like you. So I'm talking to a lot of companies. And I see what's uh, in industry today. So to be honest, not a majority of companies using deep learning today. And I would say maybe even less than 5% of the companies that use machine learning use deep learning. So it's really, really an infant uh, topic uh, in practice. The buzz around it is way more than the actual usage. Uh, we, do, we do think it's very promising. We do have the vision that we want to have a lot of different toolkits for different needs, and they have a common framework that unites them together. And it's very easy to switch. And one of the benefits of working with us is that you can do a lot of other things besides of the deep learning. Because deep learning today has two uh, common functionality with images. One of them is identifying objects and their locations in images, and the other is finding similar images. Now, most of the packages do not support uh, finding similar images because then you need to do clustering on your network models that are not available. So when you use an existing deep learning package, you should know you are solving a part of the problem, but in many cases you get a result and then you will need to use a lot of other tools in order to, to continue from there. So it's not a, a system. So it's basically one capability. In our case, you can do things like feature extraction from images, and then you can do things like cluster them together or build a hierarchy of images or find paths in a graph uh, of images and things like that uh, that creates more uh, interesting applications. By the way, Danny, for uh, those who aren't familiar with uh, Dado and GraphLab Create, uh, so it's something you can download for free. You can try many of these toolkits, including deep learning. Is that correct? Absolutely. So one of the interesting things I want to note is that we've released a Coursera course. Uh, our CEO, Carlos, uh, with his wife, Emily, there are two professors at the University of Washington. We released a, a six-part uh, certification program in machine learning with the University of Washington and Coursera. And the interesting thing here is that in four months, we gained around 40,000 students worldwide. Uh, so the course is becoming one of the most popular data science courses in Coursera. But I think the, that uh, the, the key here is that the accompanying notebooks are available, right? Absolutely. So you have the videos, you have all the examples, you can take the course for free if you like. And anyway, we give a free license for you for the duration of your course. So uh, it is very easy to, to get a free license and start playing. 
We also have a permanent free academic license. So if you are a faculty or a student, you can also receive a free license. So in closing, let's make sure people know the dates of the upcoming data science summits. First up, uh, the one in Tel Aviv. Uh, the one in Jerusalem. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah, I keep, yeah, we were so. supposed to be in Tel Aviv. We got some grant from the <laughs> municipality of Jerusalem. Yeah, so yeah. Jerusalem is a very good location to to have uh, uh, sightseeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it will be June 6th, uh, Monday, June 6th uh, in uh, Jerusalem. We expect around 1,200 data scientists to attend and we have uh, around 10 uh, keynote guests from abroad uh, you are one of them but a lot of other interesting and then the one in san francisco in france san francisco it will be tuesday july 12th and 13th so it's a two-day event we expect around 1400 data scientists and machine learning researchers to attend and we will also uh, record everything on video and we'll share it later so if you if you miss it you can always uh, complete later if you like to to watch it or if you're far away well this has been great thank you for joining us today danny thanks a lot for everything and looking forward to meeting soon uh, i guess in uh, strata san jose yes you can follow danny bixon on twitter at dado inc thank you for joining us if you like the show you can subscribe through itunes or stitcher or tunein.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.